Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center, whose goal is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. We are one month after the 2020 presidential election. Donald Trump persists in his unsubstantiated claim of massive voting fraud. His own attorney general, William Barr, has recently said that there's no evidence whatsoever of this assertion. But prominent leaders in the Republican Party persist in indulging in the president's falsehood. Others remain silent, refusing to acknowledge that Joe Biden won the election. When we take a step back to gain a measure of historical perspective, we ask, what has happened to the Republican Party? Where has it gone? And when did the drift start? There are few people better equipped to address those questions than our guest today on Then and Now, Mike Murphy. Mike is one of the Republican Party's most successful political media consultants, having handled strategy and advertising for more than 26 successful gubernatorial and senatorial campaigns. His best-known campaigns include John McCain's presidential effort in 2000, Arnold Schwarzenegger's run for governor in the Californian recall of 2003, and successful gubernatorial races for Mitt Romney, Jeb Bush, Christy Whitman, and John Engler in Mike's native Michigan. He's a longtime analyst for NBC News, and he co-hosts the popular podcast Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod. In addition, Mike is currently co-director of the University of Southern California's Center for the Political Future. It's a pleasure to have you on Then and Now, Mike Murphy. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited. Great. So the question that we want to begin with, since we divide our podcast into the past and present, is when, in your rendering, did the Republican Party begin to go off the rails? When did the transformation occur that has led to the current form of the party? How far back do we have to go to understand the phenomenon? Well, you know, it's an interesting question, and I I, I think I'm not sure I believe it's a linear thing. Like, you know, there was an event and it started. What... Two, two things have happened, and they're often lumped together, but I think they, they have some distinctions. One is there's been this fantasy reality creation bubble and, and basically ignoring the rule of law, at least in rhetoric. Trump may be in actions. I don't think a lot of other Republicans in action, but as you noted in your intro, they stayed silent. So there's the whole thing to accept non-small-D Democratic norms. Then there's the question of the populism that fueled Trump, which is different than traditional Republican conservatism. So, you know, and I'm just speculating here. I'll start with that. You're the the kind of the way it used to work was kind of the Main Street conservatives, kind of the Rotary Club, pro-business, Bob Dole, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush. We we kept the angry populist kind of bottled up. They'd show up in a primary. They'd win an Iowa caucus because they had an alliance with the religious conservatives. Then they'd go get crushed normally in New Hampshire. You know, Pat Buchanan was the great archetype. So they were always a minority view within the party that would never gain, other than a few crank congressmen, much political power. And, of course, that that sort of flipped twice. 
the first and less important time at Flip was the choice of Sarah Palin as running mate. Because even though she didn't really govern that way, she had tinges of populism, but she kind of morphed herself into that grassroots hero as vice president and kind of brought, I would call a modern know-nothingism to to the equation. And then Donald Trump, you know, Trump really was a bit of a hijacking of the party. And and people kind of forget, I'm the knucklehead who ran Jeb's super PAC. So I was in the middle of that fight. And Trump did not win an early majority of the vote, but he had a strong plurality. And he managed to merge both the populist wing of the party, which was still in the minority, but it had grown, and some of the regulars based on his celebrity and perception as somebody from outside politics, credentialed otherwise. And, you know, over time, as regular conservatives dropped out, because there were so many of us, Rubio, Casey, Christie, Jeb, um, you know, the plurality won it in the beginning, and then it was nothing but Kasich who had kind of... Uh, you know, he was, he was not, his conservative credentials were a bit in doubt. And so Trump then got to a majority status and started winning majority of the vote, partially of momentum. Then he just totally had a chokehold of the, on the party because, and this is what all my democratic friends always ask, why are they so silent? Well, they're terrified of their own primary voters. A a Republican politician friend of mine said, look, I, I despise Trump, but you know, my democratic friends can all hate on him, which is the morally right thing to do, but all their primary voters hate Trump. It's easy for them. They get rewarded for it. I go hold a press conference in my state and say Trump is an incompetent fool and a bad man. The next day, Trump is exactly the same, and I'm losing a primary, and I'm not coming back, and the new guy will have an aluminum foil hat. So yes, I could blow up my career criticizing Trump, and it would feel good, but it wouldn't change anything. And you know, I'm a political entrepreneur, and I like the idea of surviving. You're seeing it right now. They say, well, yes, he's terrible, but he'll be gone in two weeks and I can blow myself up on his way out the door. But what does that change? It's a self-rationalization, but in their heart politics, there's truth on it. And it's not an analog. And, you know, I'm not trying to make a full equivalence, but there's kind of a fourth cousin equivalence to a lot of the silence in the Democratic Party about Bill Clinton. You know, nobody Mm -hmm. wants to take on their primary voters. The Republican problem and tragedy is that, the stakes were so much higher and the crimes were significantly worse, yet the same survival fear prevailed. And from some notable exceptions, um, but damn few of them, we, the party's yeah. been silent. And, you know, I call it the Vichy Republican movement. Right. I mean, yeah, that's a that seems like an appropriate, if uh, slightly overdrawn, at least at this point, um, analogy. But I want to I want to go back. I mean, we'll we, we'll 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 get to Trump and Trumpism and and what it represents. But I, I'm really vexed over where this came out of and happen to believe that Trump is as much a symptom as he is a cause. Um, and I'm just, I'd love to get your perspective on a couple of key moments in, uh, sure. in recent political history. Um, the rise to power of Newt Gingrich. Um, recently, the Princeton historian Julian Zelitzer has written a book called Burning Down the House which talks about uh, the Gingrich phenomenon as really an important starting point in understanding this kind of nihilistic tendency in in the Republican Party. How do you understand Newt Gingrich and what he represented for the party? Well, what Newt Newt did with a bunch of energetic young Republican congressmen is blew up the old institutional rules. Uh, They were a little more predatory, and there'd been some of that in history, but Newt kind of systemized it. And while I would not call him 
he evolved in this direction later, but he wasn't really a Buchananite populist back then. He kind of went for what I call the cheap applause later, but he decided to bring kind of a new point of view, um, more aggressive, not respecting kind of the old rules where, you know, no fighting on Saturn Sunday. Um, and it was ferocious. It was partially effective. It was ultimately within the caucus, highly controversial. There were plenty of Republican regulars who were never comfortable with Newt and eventually got overthrown. Um, but he, he brought kind of a hard, let's put it this way. He took some of the private hard edge politics of the house and he put them in the storefront window and kind of made a meal out of them. But, you know, it's interesting when you look at antecedents, there was a lot of that in the nineties. I mean, Newt was kind of the, in the house Republicans 94 were kind of the star deal. They reflected the 1994 midterm elections, which were a revolt against the Clinton administration. Republicans found a lot of political success there. But, you know, you, you, you'd had this movement of tougher partisanship and old rules being thrown out, kind of growing. I mean, Ted Kennedy and the, the Borking of Robert Bork, that, that began, a cha- began a chain of events in the way we cleared, you know, Supreme Court and all judges. Um, so there was kind of a I think a decline of institutionalism and in the house, it hit a real flashpoint. I mean, there was delay, you know, there'd been the mail, the post office scandal. There were, there were some legitimate reasons to criticize the old back scratching rules, but it Newt made it into a bonfire and he took it out of the cloakrooms and put it out on, you know, cable TV and the, the, the simultaneously the growing public stage for political junkie feeding. Now we, you know, we have a network for every point of view. Um, and so, yeah, you got it. Newt was part of the spark plug, I think. There's no doubt about it. All right. Moving ahead a bit in time, to what extent can we understand the rise of Donald Trump as a result of the election of Barack Obama? Um, and really, I'm hinting at the racial politics of... Well, uh, everything Trump does has racial context. But, you know, everything AOC does has racial grievance context. So race is out there in American politics. There used to be kind of rules about how it was discussed. And and Trump, the breaker of all things institutionally helpful to a, a civil democracy, clearly has gone to places where no politician in the modern era has ever gone before and with toxic intent and toxic effect. Um, so... Do I think a lot of Republican primary voters voted for Donald Trump because Barack Obama was black? I don't really think so, but I do think there was a resentment equation. Um, My view is the 2016 election for president showed that grievance politics had hit a fever pitch in America. Um, And I often argue symmetry here, and I have to put a few qualifications on it, but Bernie Sanders is also a grievance politician. Now, he's not a racist politician like I believe Trump is, and he's not quite a simpleton. But if you listen to their core messages during their ascents uh, in in 16, Trump's grievance message was you got laid off at the Ford plant. Well, it's not your fault, and it's not your fault you're 50 and you've never been interested in job retraining, even though it's clear industrial jobs are under threat in this economy. It's the fault of a Mexican rapist who illegally tunneled into the country or some caricature Fu Manchu Chinese trade negotiator who outwitted the Washington idiots with their briefcases and Harvard degrees. And it resonated. Now, it didn't help that Hillary was talking about bathroom rights in North Carolina, which lunch pail white working class Democrats are not as concerned about. 
but the Democratic Party and its elites anyway has become obsessed with identity. Um, and then simultaneously, Bernie's saying, you know, you want to get that PhD in aromatherapy candle making, but all those college loans are unfair. There's a room in Washington full of profits, guys in tuxedos shoveling gold coins. I'm going to go get those profits. So what you want in your life, you can have, you know, because uh, you're clearly a victim of the corporate hegemony there. And I'm going to I'm going to write that wrong. And so both sides of it, Tea Party as it evolved and Occupy Wall Street had some of the same energy sources in different ways. It's, you know, there's, I'm sure you're in your world you're familiar with some of the interesting parallels in uh, the democratic party in the late sixties and early seventies between alienated voters, kind of a fork in the road between George McGovern or George Wallace, you know, that alienation does lead to extremes. And then meanwhile, the economists will tell you until recently we have not had a rise in real wages in a long, long time. So out in the great American middle class in either party, they're working more and getting less in terms of their life. And that creates grievance and anger. And then after the financial crisis, 2007, another spark for Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party is you see rich guys winning either way. When, when everything's on fire in the economy, they get rich. And when things are bad in the economy, they get bailed out. So people so, felt so me, disconnected to politics, it turns to anger. Yeah, this yeah. this um, parallel you're suggesting, um, for analytic purposes at least, between um, Trump's sense of grievance or the Trump voter sense of grievance and the Sanders voter sense of grievance. I mean, do you think they're morally equivalent to grieve against corporations for a vast income inequality versus a sense of grievance that has this kind of unmistakable racial coding to it. I'm oh, no, curious. You know, yeah, that. yeah. No, racism is always worse. And that's why I make that okay. distinction when I draw the parallel. I think both ideologies, if you step yeah. back from the moral repugnance of Trump, they're both equally stupid because they're not connected, in my view, <laughs> to a real honest discussion of what, what causes things. But, you know, malls don't close because of, you know, caricature Mexicans or, 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 you know, Chinese trade negotiators. But I think Bernie's cartoon is a cartoon too. Trump's is just a racist cartoon, which makes it worse. I mean, the Bernie phenomenon is so fascinating. I mean, uh, 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 yeah. an elderly, a septuagenarian Jewish socialist grandfather mm -hmm. had tremendous traction, especially with young voters. I mean, is it, what does it yeah. look like to you? I mean, how do you explain that? Well, I think he, he was authentic. You know, uh, some guy's going to run for president with a gimmick about my bumper sticker is I don't do bumper stickers. You know, he, Bernie was kind of so real, but he listened, he had one stump. His whole campaign was one stump. It got to the point in his campaign, he fired his ad guy and just did a stump into a camcorder on his kitchen table. You know, he, he had that hit record and that hit record was all grievance, everything in it. And it was all a laundry. Here's what I'm going to get you. And here's why you don't have it. The pharmaceutical companies that is I'm going to betray my conservative outlook here that by the way, their labs, you know, saved my life when I had a heart attack. Um, they, uh, they're evil. So if we just see the problem with politics now to steal Bill Gray's great phrase is we've gotten to these tribes of I'm right, you're evil. And if, if that morally loads everything, and if the other side is evil, you can do anything to stop it. Now, the problem for weak anti-Trump conservatives is Trump is evil enough that we don't have a lot of high ground to go attack anybody else. But now that we're rolling Trump up in a carpet and hopefully dragging him out of the White House, 
if we're able to rebuild the party, that may change. But we forfeited the moral high ground. Well, is that divide, that Manichaean divide between I'm right, you're evil, is that so new? I mean, when you started out in, in politics, was it very no, was it different? No, they were your opponent and you relished a good fair fight, but they weren't your enemy. It wasn't like the Michigan State-Ohio game or Michigan-Ohio game, where at the end, then you burn down the stadium and murder half the audience. You know, everything's a red wedding now. Uh, and th the problem with that is it destroys the framework for politics to operate. I mean, if people go to the root, you know, word definition of to politic, it's basically to wheel and deal and to, you know, uh, yeah, manipulate a little, but practice politics like members of Congress would behind closed doors. Then we added the TV reality show aspect to it. And then we added a few cable TV profit and loss statements where heat pays. Uh, and so public theater used to be a third of a politician's job. Now public theater is 95% of the politician's job and they have no time to be politicians. You know, they have time to be these public performers talking to their tribe. And then we've redistricted everybody. So the incentive set has moved from the general election voters to the primary voters. That's who you have to please. There used to be about 80 members of Congress 20 years ago between the most conservative Democrat and the most liberal Republican. Now I think it's three or four. And so just there's no room to move and breathe for these guys. They're trapped in this thing. Right. Um, yeah, I want to get back to that segmenting of the electorate. Um, but um, I want to also go back to another moment that I'd love your reaction to. Um, 2010, uh, Mitch McConnell says our goal is to prevent Obama from being reelected. Um, did that stand out in your mind? As, does it stand out in your mind as, a, as an indication of a new set of rules? Or is that just sort of... I think it's part of the evolution. Every, he was saying what everybody believes. Yeah, I mean, I think Tom Daschle felt exactly the same way, but he never said it. You know, Tom, Tom would smile and talk about here are the five things we're trying to do, but the bad Republicans won't let us do them. Subtext, get rid of the bad Republicans, particularly the president. So Mitch is kind of a brute force politician. He's quite effective. And, you know, he... The truth is, Mitch is kind of a throwback to an old politician, a power politician of the inside game. He's terrible on TV. People see him like he's, you know, Dracula. But I think he was being honest in that moment, you know, mm -hmm. but sometimes being honest in politics is is punished. I remember Mitt Romney, my old friend, he once was caught in a moment of analytical honesty at the Iowa State Fair. And he said, well, corporations are people, too. And, and from a legal point of view, they kind of are. Um, but of course, in, in modern politics, that's such a horrible thing to say because it implies the same moral weight to a corporation as opposed to the legal right of the entity, which, of course, was what Romney was saying. So, uh, but yeah, the, the, I think Mitch was less a cause than a symptom by then. And, you know, he, he said what is often true about the Senate, though, you know, and this is one of these inconvenient complexities, but in truth, you know, this will seem so strange to people who kind of watch the Kabuki theater. Uh, McConnell's relationship with Biden is far better than his relationship with Trump. For years, the Democrat who was best able to go into a room with Mitch McConnell in politic and, and get a deal made was Joe Biden. And we yeah. may see a little we return call to Joe. that. Yeah, not because yeah, not not because Joe um, and Mitch love each other, but it's, it'll be they both will have a shared interest, and that's where political deals come from. Well, I, that that makes sense, and and that sort of suggests that you're right when you say once upon a time it used to be that you didn't want to kill your opponent, you wanted to beat your opponent, but not with the same kind of bloodthirsty relish as today. But one of the things that really perplexes me is that in today's world, and really as a function of Trumpism, 
the boundary between institutionalists, as I think of them, and, and disruptors, as Trump yeah. represents, seems to be completely blurred. And so McConnell, you know, whom you would say is the arch institutionalist, seems as much a disruptor as any, or at least willing to go along with the disruptors, to fall in the wake of the disruptors. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of a passive deal, where the institutionalists are doing damn little to defend the institution while somebody's literally pouring acid all over them. And I know what the strategy is. Most politicians are very risk adverse incumbents because they have something they don't want to lose, their office. And so when in doubt, wait and do nothing. And they have picked a wait and do nothing um, on Trump because that's they think the outcome will be no more Trump and they're afraid of their primary voters. So they have an incredible, frankly, pain tolerance for allowing the country and the institutions to be harmed well, in their narrow self-interest, they try to wait out Trump. And, you know, they all rationalize it by, oh, I'm going to be doing great things once I survive. But, you know, that's kind of a Faustian equation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I guess to just go back to this question, uh, which I'm trying to beat like a dead horse. Um, no, it's the big the, question. You know, the, question like, the question, the way I phrase it is, you know, the scholars of democracy uh, of recent vintage, like... Uh, uh, Zyblot and Levitsky, who wrote How Democracy Dies, say uh, it dies when one of the teams stops playing by the rules, the mm -hmm. rules of the democratic game. You know, uh, you're, you're a Republican strategist, and you know how Democrats play as well as you know how Republicans play. It seems like the Republicans are not playing by the rules of the game anymore. They are not right now, no doubt about it. Now, they're, they're ignoring the rules at small concrete cost in huge institutional cost. In other words, Trump is not telling 101st Airborne to go attack anybody. You know, it's all dangerous rhetoric, but dangerous rhetoric is a cancer that can spread. And we do know from polls that anywhere from 20 to 60 million people think the election was fraudulent when the fact is the election wasn't. So Trump is way out of bounds. And again, their strategy is to wait him out because, you know, they think he's, he's squawking on his way to the gallows. And a lot of them will be happy to see him go, but they're they're not trying to counteract the rhetoric because they're afraid of him. So th that leads to what I think the big question is, is Trumpism permanent? Now, the Washington conventional wisdom now in, the, in journalism and opinion leaders, not all, but most, is because we've been through this bizarro land, anti-democratic madness, the first hostile transfer of power in American history, really, at, at least in modern mass voting televised history. Uh, we never had this before, and it's so horrifying, particularly theoretically, but we see it happening that, you know, it's there's a perception that it's been so bad, it won't change because the Republicans have proven to be morally cowardly and, and, and you know, and, and unable to rise to the challenge. And Trump's lock has never been disproved. I'm actually a contrarian on this, and I'm only guessing. But I'm, I think as Trump's fingers rot out of office, I think the grip will loosen. There was a time when Sarah Palin was the most powerful and field person in the feared person in the Republican Party. Not for long, but there was a moment. And now you can hire her to open a car wash for 500 bucks. So, you know, we, we will see. I, there's a science experiment happening right now that's fascinating to me. So Trump sitting in the White House being furious about losing and creating this alternative reality uh, for his troops and to some extent for him that it was all stolen when we know that's a lie, a massive lie. He started to attack Republican governors. He attacked uh, Governor Kemp of Georgia. You see, yeah. Yeah, who was, by the way, a Trumpy candidate. Trump endorsed him. I right. mean, believe me, he's no, uh, 
know Eisenhower, but in, on this voting thing, he's been pretty stalwart. You know, he's weasel worded a little bit, but he's, he's been tough. Yep. Yep. It was also tough. He picked his own Senate candidate rather than the Trump one uh, to fill the, uh, uh, the, the seat um, that is now being contested in the, in the runoff of Kelly Leffler. So, and he did the same with uh, Governor Ducey of Arizona, who's another kind of go along Paul, but who also wouldn't bend on this. And he's blasted them both by Twitter. Now, a year ago, that would have caused waves of terror in the Republican Party because God is going to wipe them out. It's going to be another uh, Jeff Flake or um, Paul, or excuse me, uh, uh, Bob Corker in Tennessee, who were both basically hounded out of politics by Trump criticism because the party started rejecting him. Now the Washington machine is watching to see they seem to still be alive. And 90 days from now, as Trump keeps squawking at him, and the lightning bolts don't burn anybody to death and they're still walking around. You know, it's a perception market. And when all of a sudden Superman can't fly and lift locomotives anymore, they're going to treat him differently. You know, I think that's going to evolve the personality cult. And he's got other problems coming. The, the, and now, that said, as we speak, he's rating the RNC of millions of dollars right now for his personal political committee. I mean, it's unbelievable the exit crimes here. We're probably going to see bad pardons, too. But I don't know. This Ducey and Kemp thing could be a test. Will the fear factor start to be, will start to diminish? Now, the Trump populism, though, and some of the racial populism, the question is, does that sauce ever get put back in the lead vault where it belongs or not? And I don't know. That that seems plausible to me. Um, He loses interest. He no longer has the trappings of power that that amplify uh, his message. People see him as more buffoonish over time. I, I could easily see his his popularity waning along with his attention. Um, is there another Republican ready to pick up the banner of Trumpism? Uh, or there are, are there are? Yeah. So one, I think part of the Trump equation, just to wrap that up, will be, you know, how how much he tries to do a family dynasty with one of the kids. Uh, you know, his need for media attention is so absolute. I have no doubt he's going to file a committee um, that he's going to run. I don't think he's going to run. I think he's afraid of losing again, loser being the worst word in his his mental universe. But I think he's going to do it for microphones. And then the media has got to make a decision. Are they still going to, you know, suck down the Trump steroids for clicks and ratings? Because they fuel him. It's a symbiotic relationship. Or are they going to treat him like some other out of office Republican who might run for president? And you know, my cynical friends say they're going to totally buy him hook, line, and sinker and amplify him. I'm not sure. He's also going to get into this weird inner party brawl between Fox and the two upstarts, anti-Foxes, which he's rooting for because he's, you know, angry like everything of Trump grievance at, at Fox. So what, what happens as far as new Trumps? There are a couple of ambitious young senators who are trying to kind of do a hybrid Trumpism, a smarter, less offensive populism. You've got Senator Tom Cotton, Senator Josh Hawley. They're both young. They're both ambitious. They're both smart. And they see, at least from their point of view, what works in Trumpism. And as long as they think it's in their political interest to be powerful in the primary, they'll start to copy it. I mean, the, the, the thought of the Republican hive of ambitious politicians right now is that Kamala Harris is going to be a weak candidate in four years, and she can be beaten in a general election. And therefore, the Republican nomination is definitely worth having. And the success to get it, you need three things to happen. One, you've got to edge out the other young new guys or women, because you got Nikki uh, Haley out there. A lot of people thinking about this. 
Two, you need Trump to get out of the damn way. So even though some of your ideology may see uh, similar, you want to you want to get rid of them. Uh, and then, you know, three, you you try to find the right mix. How much Trumpism plus how much you know normal will work in the Republican primary three years from now, the future, not tomorrow. And so that calculation is happening with, you know, lots of ambitious would-be candidates. And the truth is that it, we don't know yet. We have to see the Trump decline. I think people are watching the midterms in 2022 to see if kind of uh, Reformation Republicans start winning, beating people doing the old Trump Act, or the Trump thing still works. You know, the political market's going to decide that. And what would you do if you were in charge? Would you um, call for, you know, a, uh, a season of meditation in the desert and introspection and taking stock of uh, the moral abomination that has just passed and then sit down and carefully plot a strategic plan for a Republican Party that was true to its Lincolnian values and uh, represented America? Or I know that's not how it works, but what would you like to see? Um, well, yeah, what, I mean, what, kind I, of input, what kind of self-reflection needs to happen after this uh, period of, of almost uh, incredible uh, decline? Well, I'm an apostate, so I'd be thrown out the window. You know, I'm a former three-star general. Um, but, you know, some of them listen to me and a lot of them know. There's still factions in the party. There are people who have been quietly uneasy who just say, I don't have the power to stop Trump, but I applaud his, you know, his departure. Um, so what, what I would recommend is we try governing for a while. Uh, and I think McConnell's thinking about this big infrastructure deal, smaller stimulus package. He'd rather do that deal with Biden because he thinks he'll, you know, get more. Um, you know, right now, all Mitch cares about is holding Senate power because that's an important factor. So between now and early January, not a lot will happen because it's all about voters. Uh, but yeah, I would, I would slow down. I'd govern from the right. And I've always argued, I wrote a piece for time, I think in 2008 called the coming Republican ice age, because our problem is demographic. And, you know, we have these moments like Trump with the voters, in Miami Dade County, where the populism overperforms, but the trend of declining white electorate is unstoppable. And we are not competitive with most constituencies of color. Now we, we had a little luck with Cubans in Miami, but that is, you know, take a look at some, and, and Mexicans in the Rio Grande Valley, but some of that was issue-based, you know, energy. Um, it, we, we have a headwind there. So the question is, do we modernize conservatism to appeal to more people going forward? Or do we want to be the minority conservative party of the gated community? Now, the problem we have is also the problem the Democrats have. They are they are playing with uranium, and the uranium is affecting us. And by that, I mean, if you, I actually screen save this. If you look at the front, and I'm a big fan of Mark Lilla's book on all this, The Once and Future Liberal, which is kind of an attack on identity politics from the left. If, if you look at the front page of Biden's website, um, and I voted for Biden, I sent him money. Uh, Trump was evil. I was strategic advisor to Republican voters against Trump. You know, I blew up my career to fight Trump. I, Trump is evil. But the front page of Biden, and Biden ran a good campaign, but deeply ingrained into Democratic DNA, they have this cartoon series of like 20 people at the bottom representing the constituency. And everybody is visually defined as a group member. You know, it's LBGT people of color, it, it, you know, and it goes on and on and on. And if you look at it, 
it is different groups listing grievances and they see the country as a confederation of groups and their rights to wrong, you know, morally very presentable and legitimate argument. The Republicans tend to do the shining city on the hill, one goal, one idea for everybody. And, you know, even MAGA. So when the Democrats tell everybody politics is about which group you're in and, you know, who your grievance is against and what you need to get, what you've earned, how you've been discriminated against, they also create a white group because, the, you know, the, the grievance white voters read that and then they find a Trump and the white group's the big group. It's the plurality group, even in the shrinking demography. So, if I go do my future demographics, opportunity, conservatism, modernized conservative routine, there are no shortage of Republican polls who would say, well, hang a minute. Trump was an asshole and the country fired him in record numbers. But, you know, our people didn't fire the Congress. You know, they, they actually gave us seats. We grew and they're supposed to win the Senate. We pretty much cleaned their clocks. And what about state legislatures? We're in much better shape to draw districts than we would. So, the minute we started saying defund the police, which is code for Democrats are pandering to extreme elements, many of them connected to street protest and disorder about you know racial inequity, but not kind of good civil racial inequity from their argument, not mine, but you know bad violent stuff. People vote for us in droves, so this identity thing is kind of working for us. So we're be white identity. And they can be non-white identity and the, the math's on our side forever. So let's go pick up more seats. And so that's why the Trumpism is going to be hard to kill for a while, because the Democrats are kind of creating an opening there. But that's the not Democrats the recipe. had a more Unitarian message. They'd be killing us. That's not the recipe you're proposing for the new Republican Party of the 21st no, century. No, it, it's that, not. That's, but it's, that's a reactive um, politics of resentment and, and, and yeah. vengeance in some sense. And I yeah, should just say, one like, other, it, there's one other group we should add to the mix, yeah. um, whom I think of as like the, amongst the chief cultural warriors, um, and that's the Christian right, Christian evangelicals. Yeah, absolutely. Committed to an identity in a proactive way, not just reactively. Um, and they participate absolutely. in the game of ide identity politics in their own way. Oh, I think everybody does. So, you know, I just think as an American, the more we get out of identity as the fund, a nation of groups rather than a nation of everybody united on one idea. And then we debate within the parties who's ideologically best to achieve that. It's just a better politics than grievance auctions. And, you know, I mean, I, I said this on Hacks on Tap and my liberal buddy for 30 years, Axelrod, in a gentler way, um, agreed with me, which is uh, Jen Psaki, who they just appointed White House uh, spokesperson. I've known for a long time. She's the best in the business. She's, you know, uh, and I felt bad for her. I'm not speaking for her, but if I were her, I would have been offended by the thing was, you know, we have the first all female team. Well, well, Jen Psaki is such a superstar. I don't care if she's a talking refrigerator. She's been ready for that job for years. She could have done it 10 years ago. She's the best on their side. And I thought, you know, they, again, the identity prison comes out and they make a cheap optics hit out of it. Um, you can understand it. You can understand it. I mean, we're talking about groups that have been disenfranchised from, uh, the, you know, full participation in, in, you know, America's growth and prosperity. And right. No, no, I get it. And I argue with Jane June all the time because she's struggling with how can any woman vote Republican? Well, a ton do. You know, who in American pop culture, what's the most invisible group? Yet there are approximately one out of five voters. Pro-life women. Because under that lexicon, they can't exist.
you know, they're theoretically impossible. Well, about 18% of the electorate. So, you know, I, my only point is the Democrats do get in their own way, which is an incentive that helps the people who want to do identity division from the white side mm-hmm. find political success like they just did in the midterm mm-hmm. elections. So help me understand I'm sorry, in the presidential election. Yeah. Help me understand um, the media landscape, uh, which, as you noted in an aside earlier, is so fragmented, so atomized and, 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 and segmented. And, you know, I always say you, you go to the news you want to hear, um, which is different than the Walter Cronkite model. Um, right. Is that, how do you see that as a cause or a symptom of the political world we inhabit? What's the, That's what's the role question. of... Um, well, yeah, you know, I'd have to really, I'm struggling on cause or symptom because as you know, what hap- we used to have three networks slight left to center tilt, but basically Unitarian. And they filtered the news. So if you were a crackpot, you didn't get a lot of attention. Uh, Now, because of technology, we have the ability for niche news to be very profitable. And look, I work for one of them. I work for NBC News, which I think is quite straight. But we have a talk radio channel after dark called MSNBC. And that that has one kind of opinion programming. Uh, And then you have Fox and now OAN and Newsmax, boy, you, you won't ever make your hair grow, turn into Newsmax sometimes. It'll, it'll break your heart. And again, I'm a conservative, but it's Pravda from the kooky right. Um, So, you know, but with niches, it's kind of like if you're in, in this model doesn't work in the internet here, but if you made a magazine, it's better to have a niche magazine with a big loyal audience than it is to try to do everything magazine. You know, if you, and so these niches are good business because they can do well with, you know, 900,000 voters, which is a very small, 900,000 eyeballs, which is a fairly small nut under the old equation, but pretty good now with the 120 channels and streaming and everything else. And they have found that audiences reward creating that reality bubble. And it's, uh, it's trouble. And uh, it teaches people that, you know, they can find the facts they want, which makes them lazy. And there seems to be limited interest in the facts because most of them do opinion. I mean, at nine o'clock at night and cut to Murphy fired by NBC, but at nine o'clock at night, you flip around, you got a choice between Hannity, Rachel Maddow and Chris Cuomo. And they're all doing mad profit of the airwaves of slightly different flavors. Rachel's doing her conspiracy and uncovering these stories that a lot of the regular media doesn't seem to want to uncover in, in her level of conjecture. And, I, you know, she is a friend of mine, but I, I don't really like her recipe. Chris Cuomo's doing fiery profit, doing kind of Rachel light uh, and ranting about Trump and everything. And then the Fox guys are off in Hannity world, which is another planet. Uh, now, I think when Trump is gone, they've all got to have a crisis. How does MSNBC, ha- you know, cover a Democratic president? Fox will never change, but they got this problem from the right, you know, and, and they're, they're never going to be able to outkook Newsmax or OAN. And then CNN has to figure out what they are without Trump for Anderson Cooper to roll his eyeballs at. But it is damn hard at nine o'clock to find news on cable TV. Um, so there are businesses so you, you which mean the, to say will evolve, but it, it's not helpful. Now. Yeah. And you can't put the genie back in the bottle. You can't sort of piece together the broken vessel into a single unitary uh, a, a bottle anymore. So what, what, 
what would you recommend moving forward? I mean, how would you alter that media landscape? Or what should we be doing to, you know, to recapture a sense of the common wheel? Um, well, that is a great question. When in doubt, change the incentives. Uh, I would redistrict to make primaries less important. Uh, so narrow casting is less politically successful. I like the California system. It's not perfect, but the all everybody on one ballot, top two, because that gives politicians who remember entrepreneurs in a marketplace more room to maneuver. I would I would change the system little to make it harder for people to meet the threshold. Because what happens now is you have a in California, for example, you run for governor, you got a liberal Republican. Uh, and then you might have a more cons- excuse me, a liberal Democrat, labor candidate. Then you might have a hybrid pro-business Democrat moderate or a hybrid more moderate Republican, but then you will have a hardcore Republican running for 10% in immigration, which will defeat the, the candidate trying to move around. So I get rid of the, the 10 percenters, make it harder for them. to. Uh, but anyway, so I would have systemic reforms to change the incentives for how you get elected. I would, the ugly little secret of politics, and most of these guys want to get along, they're just afraid to. If you ever hang around the Congress behind the scenes, they're all friends, but publicly they're caught in kabuki theater. So you 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 try to show them by example that there's political success in actually doing some stuff. And that's why I say Mitch ought to try governing because I think there could be applause all around. I I think that a lot of it, and you know, voters love to complain about politics, but they do reward the current behavior. Because politics is very transactional. People vote for what they want and they tend to get it, or at least they're told what they, you know, they vote for promises. So if people hated this stuff, they should start voting against it. That really works, but they don't seem to want to. The anthropology of our tribal society seems to kind of enjoy the wartime. Let's drill down a little on the tribalism. 72 million people voted for Donald Trump. Can you, as a keen observer, um, and as a longtime Republican hand, Give us a profile of the 72 million or well, a series yeah. of profiles. So that number is powerful and being used a lot. And it is true. It is the most votes anybody in America has ever gotten for president, except for Joe Biden, who did a comfortable, I think, five and we're still waiting on New York, but five and a half million votes more setting the all time record. But all along, and we've done some polling at USC that shows this. We haven't done post-election yet, but. People make a mistake between Trump voters and Trump love. Uh, so of the, the 74 million who voted for Trump, don't all love Trump. Um, but they voted for their tribe. It's like if I'm a Boston Red Sox fan and our pitcher's a jerk uh, and I'm mad at him, that's not enough to have me put on a Yankee cap. You know, we did polling where half Republicans wish some other Republican were running for president. But that won't make them a Democrat because the tribal loyalty is so strong. And, and you saw the intensity. A lot of Republican voters, a lot of Americans, 70-some million of them, had some fear about the Democrats, you know, down ballot. They were comfortable with old Joe because they knew him. And they knew he wasn't scary. They knew he wasn't AOC. But the congressional world had a little different vibe. And so... There are people on the on that Republican vote side who are stuck because they really don't see an alternative worth leaving the tribe for. So that means what's important is to win the tribal battle of who's at the top. Because of that 70 million, 50 million of the well, more, probably 55 to 60 million of them will vote for a box of hammers if it has an R on it. And there's a Democrat analog to that too. So, you know, the question is, can we 
can we get out of this pure tribal thing and have more kind of enlightened and accretive leaders in the party rather than guys who rely on tribalism. And I will say, bring in their own little sliver. I mean, Trump, Trump did bring in some super alienated Trump voters more than ever in this election. And those, they were there for Trump. Trump had a big knuckle of those. Cause again, and who are they? You ask who they are. Well, my, my glib response, if you want to meet, I always say this in like LA County or Manhattan, if you want to meet a Trump voter, call nine one one when you're in trouble. And the cop outside scaring the scary guy from your window away may very well be a Trump voter. Um, but in, in a more complex and honest uh, look at it, they are generally people who are white and increasingly Latino, but still, you know, there's no, no way it's the majority of the Latino vote for Trump. They are often connected to small economic enterprises that may not be successful, they are not the voters of wealth. It's actually a bell curve on that. If you're very poor, you tend to be a Democrat. Very rich, you tend to be a Democrat. Um, so it's more about Mark Melman, the great uh, Democratic pollster. Yeah, and, and you know, alumni of the Yale Political Science Department, where he started as a teacher, an old friend of mine. Uh, he argues the big mistake we make is we fall into kind of the modern assumption that all politics is about class when it's really about culture. And so they tend to not be urban. You know, the Democrats get all their vote from 350 counties in America, and there are 3,200 counties. So they, they tend to be in exurban areas or more rural or semi-rural areas. They tend to be in, in counties with more stagnant economic growth and more economic fear. Um, Penn State did a fun study. You've probably seen it after 16, where they rank counties by meth use and all these horrible social indicators, and they were overwhelmingly Trump. Uh, so it, it, it's kind of a vote of protest and despair, because, you know, when we ran all the regression data on why people voted for Trump in 16, it was not the racial stuff. There was energy and all that, but it was more than that. It was they thought the art of the deal guy could fix Washington because he wasn't part of it. He was credentialed from outside DC. Now, even though the credential was sitting in a cardboard boardroom designed to look like the real thing, firing Gilbert Gottfried, who was paid to pretend to work for him. But they bought that idea of the big broom guy who will, who will shake it up because they feel so left behind. And that that's still the Trump world. You know, it, it's, uh, it is, it is places that think the American dream is gone for them. They think they play by the rules. They're older. And, you know, they see the new America. Under 18, America is only about 56% Caucasian. Mm -hmm. And that's not the America they grew up in. They're not used to hearing a foreign language at the checkout counter at the hardware store. Mm -hmm. You know, there are all these forces and people say, oh, that's total racism. Well, they're not necessarily so racist, but like most old people or older people, their you know, change makes them nervous. Mm -hmm. And so they're not as comfortable with it. And they look to pop culture where they're constantly told they're jerks. You know, who's the, and I go back to this again, but show me a hit TV show where there's a sympathetic pro-life woman. If you can find one, I'll send you 500 bucks this year. Um, so they, they feel shunned by culture. I actually ran a poll on this. I had one of Trump's pollsters during the White House. They did a monthly poll. And he was an old friend of mine, even though we violently disagree on Trump. And you know, I work in TV as a writer and producer. So, and I go to these development meetings and like everything, people kind of, they look at their own bubbles. So, you know, what'll sell in Brentwood? And I, and I said, put on your monthly Trump poll, this question to the people who make the network TV shows, not the contests, the singing contest, not the sports, but the stories with scripts and actors, are they making 
TV shows about you and your friends in your life, or are they making friend shows about their friends in New York, LA, San Francisco, and Miami? It was three to one Miami, New York. I mean, there's such alienation culturally. They feel unwelcome. And, you know, they, their way to riot is not to burn anything down, is to vote for Donald J. Trump. And it's part of that irony whole of division. Irony of ironies. I mean, a oh, pampered totally. uh, yeah. billionaire or centimillionaire. Oh, um, yeah. No, no. The hypocrisy and irony of it will break your mind. You know, it's so crazy. Right. But you got to see it from their point of view, enemy of my enemies. The people who yeah. laugh at me because, you know, Trump's for the veterans. Trump's for the border. Trump's for made in America. Uh, Trump's a success. It's very appealing because otherwise you're going to get somebody explaining woke identity politics. And Biden was better than average on the Democratic stuff. You know, he understands that music because he he kind of has the demography of a Trump voter in his, in his own life. Mm-hmm. And right. so he was less threatening to him. And they were like, OK, we can fire Trump and put up with this guy. But it was still close, you know, in, in a bunch of states. So that's an opportunity to, to shift to the man who actually did win the election. Um, what's your measure of Joe Biden and whom you voted for and whom you sent money to? And what do you think he has to do? Yeah, uh, more than that, we spent $40 million trying to help him at Republican Voters Against Trump. And we're all Reagan conservatives, so it was a character-building experience. But none of us had much hesitation about it. What I think the good side of Biden, and there's a lot of it, is one, I'm soft on him because he's an Irish Bill Cream politician. And I grew up around those in Detroit. My grandfather was an elected semi-machine Democrat. So, you know, good old I'm from Scranton. I'm from Scranton. Oh, my God. Yeah, you totally get it there. I mean, by the way, Lucerne County there is one of the great Trump stories. He he just blew that away. I mean, the network computer. Twenty sixteen in particular, especially. Yeah, yeah, no, sixteen was the real story. You know, Reagan, I think, won. It's like three hundred three thousand, roughly. Reagan in his big reelect won about like eighty five hundred. Trump was in the twenties there, just broke the machine. So, Biden. What I like about him is one, unlike Trump, who almost to a criminal level didn't understand it, Biden understands the role of head of state. You know, we, as you know, as a political scientist and academic, we have this weird system where we have a the, the, the job of the Queen of England and the prime minister is the same guy here. You're head of state and head of government. That, that's kind of rare. Yep. And so the head of state is a different job. The prime minister, you can fight over the price of cheese. Head of state, you represent and defend the values of the country. And Biden understands that and he will do that. And it'll be a welcome return to normalcy. Trump never understood that. He was all me, 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 prime minister evil. Uh, So Biden gets the job. Two, Biden, I think his motives are good. I think he is a good person. I think he's a patriot. Now, ideologically, I think he's been wrong on a lot of stuff over the years. But if I had to pick a Democrat ideologically, I was proud of him in the primary because he didn't pander to, from my point of view, the semi-loony left. So on my center meter, yeah, I'm okay with, I had a Republican congressman call the other day saying, you know, his cabinet, I'm fine with him. You know, my God, we have regular business hours. Nobody will fall asleep during a cabinet meeting. It won't have these sycophants. You know, I can take every damn one of them, get back to work and senior Republican member of Congress. Um, so I, I just think it'll be normalcy and competence, though I, I'm worried um, about the lift he's got. Because this pandemic is costing us World War II money in real dollars. And we have artificially low interest rates, and we're afraid to tax anybody except rich people. And we're frankly, 
you know, we're kind of, we get a bunch of our revenue there already. Eventually, to quote the great Margaret Thatcher, the problem with socialism, you run out of other people's money. You can tax the rich at 150%. You can't close the budget deficit. So I think Biden knows what to do. And he has, the last thing is he has politician skills, which we haven't had in a while. Obama's politician skills were weak. He was a good public candidate, one of the best ever. He was a great mythology guy. He was a patriot or knew how to be president. But his politician, LBJ, pull him in a thing, understand what they really care about is their idiot son winning the congressional seat in their home state and get the deal done. Uh, Obama was terrible at that. And Biden is good at it. So if anybody can make the creaky thing work quietly, it'll be him. And he's got a huge lift coming. But I think his skills are up to it. Yeah, we know from the smoke-filled back room in Scranton. I can assure you of that. Yeah, that's what you uh, learned there. I worked for Ernie Preate. Remember him? Your old Lackawanna County DA. Later went to prison uh, well. after being a general. Well. Yeah, we used to call I him the Raptor. Well. Yes, yes, yes. But Ernie, I tell you, when Ernie needed to get something done as, as as Attorney General, which is an emperor in Pennsylvania, he would go sit down with one of the best named politicians ever. Senator Democrats from South Philly, Vincent Fumo. They used to say de-organized crime in the newspaper. But Vince Fumo ran that approach committee, built the modern Philly, and he and Ernie would go into the back room. There'd be screaming, there'd be that. And at the end, a deal was done. And, you know, that's what I miss is giving real politicians a little room in the shade to do their thing. And our modern politics is punishes that with this kind of piousness that it's all corrupt and terrible. Uh, I, I would get, like to get some wheeler dealer back where maybe the garbage contract falls off the truck to the cousin, but they get the stuff done and they actually govern and they do it pretty effectively. What's your best guess? How, how will how will Joe Biden do? How will he do with Mitch McConnell? Will he realize, uh, you know, the full extent of his political skills? Uh, I'm fairly optimistic. It won't be heaven, but I think Mitch wants to get some stuff done because if he wins, uh, Georgia, he's still hanging on by a thread and he's going to have a split cough because he's going to have a couple of young tigers running for president doing, doing, bring them down, evil, evil, being Trump light. But he's got a bunch of regulars who want to be able to go home and say they did something because of Trump fatigue is in both parties. So he won't give them a lot and it'll take a Biden because the Republicans will say, yeah, we're doing infrastructure, but we're not going to do Davis Bacon in every damn state where it's a billion dollars an inch to build a highway because of union laws. And you're going to have right-to-work Republican governors won't want to take the money. And then Biden's a union guy, so we're going to have to make a deal in the middle somewhere. But nobody's better equipped for that than Biden. So if if Mitch wants to get some wins, and as long as he will if it's in his interest as Republican leader. I mean, I can argue being a good government conservative that it wouldn't be bad if Georgia was split. So the Republicans are holding on by one because that would negotiate. And it would also help Biden because Biden's problem is going to be the insurrection on the left. And they're going to say, we won, we got power, here's our list, we got the green new solar health care, et cetera. And there's a danger that Biden will be treated like a lame duck by his own tigers. But if Mitch is the key because he's the center by one vote and motivated to deal, then Biden's in the center of the power politics and he's in charge, which is good for Biden. And I think as somebody more in the center right than the left, uh, good for the country too. So... As we move towards uh, the end of our time, um, how serious a hit has Donald Trump delivered to democracy in America? Or let me put it otherwise, how confident are you about the strength of democracy in the United States right now? 
I am worried, but essentially optimistic. I worry more than the temporary damage of Trump, which we we're going to find out. I worry more about the cultural decline of the country, which I think is part of it. We don't teach civics anymore in a lot of schools. Uh, we teach identity history. Sorry to keep pounding that, but it, but it's true. This doesn't happen by complete accident. And I, I, I don't know if the voters are getting any smarter. Back when I started with Mark Melman and others in the early 80s, there was more finesse to campaign strategy. Now it's just sledgehammers and bullshit. Um, and people kind of buy it if it rewards their framework, which is often not fact-based. Uh, Bob Shrum often says over at USC, we can have huge differences, but we need a common set of facts. And the common set of facts is what's under attack. And, you know, these political scientists who study that is often the first thing that goes when democracy goes is the commonly accepted truths. And so I worry a lot about that. I worry about the digital era because right now you can distribute information for free. You know, in the old days, in a congressional campaign 30 years ago, the campaign manager would have a lockbox with 2,000 cash and a whole, you know, 10,000 in stamps. We all remember the House Post Office scandal. It's basically about free stamps. Stamps were cash. But the volunteers would come in. They'd dole out the stamps. They'd send stuff. There was cost to messaging. And to get the money for the messaging, you would go to a smaller elite on either side, the local hardware store business owners if you're a Repub, the local union local if you're a Dem. And you'd have to clear some tests by the leadership there saying, you're not a kook. You can win. You get it. They get money. And then they turn on the campaign machine to make their argument. Now with the internet, I mean, I've got a hundred and some thousand Twitter followers, which amazes me. I could tweet something now essentially for free on my smartphone and be destroyed in American politics tomorrow or not tomorrow in 17 seconds, because I can distribute so much information so quickly for free. There's no barrier. So if I'm a racist demagogue, you know, or one of a hundred niche knuckleheads pushing a, if I'm in QAnon, you know, or, or whatever, um, that stuff is miracle grow for me. I can just send out the stuff and some people buy it. So technology is divisive that way because it fuels narrow messages and there's no barrier to find the money to be able to mass communicate. Instead, what you rely on is the heat of your message. Because the more awful it is, the more it gets repeated. Um, and, you know, so anyway, I, I worry about all these structural in, in incentives. Um, but it's the decline of truth. The OAN and, and Newsmax stuff really terrifies me. I watched a dose of it the other day, and it is, it's treason. Yeah. Well, what you've just expressed is a kind of nostalgia for a better bygone era. Um, and this leads to uh, the final question, which is, what do you think we need to learn from the past? What What are the important lessons that history has to impart to us? Well, there are the bright lessons and the dark lessons. The dark lessons is humans are capable of mass evil. And, you know, we're not that special. Germany was a young but fairly advanced democracy. And... You know, everybody says, well, they, you know, strike up a marching band. They always want to invade Poland, hardy, har, har. But we, we are not immune to losing what we have. On the other hand, they fired Trump. More Americans voted in American history to fire Donald Trump. And not small in the national vote. The young generation is very literate. And I think social media has tried to make them more fact-based. Although I, I worry sometimes about the sourcing, the internet could use some curation. 
but still, it, it's funny. I have a friend who's a big HR expert. And I asked him the question that everybody who owns the business over 50 asks these guys and every corporate America says they are all driven crazy by their millennial employees or Gen Y, Gen Z, Gen Pi, whatever it is now. They all drive them crazy because they don't know how to manage them. What's why? And yeah, I'd heard a million bullshit answers. He said, actually, the answer is really simple. A lot of research has been done on this. They grew up with search engines, so they do not value experience. They think they can learn the answer to any question in 10 minutes on the internet, maybe less on their phone. Well, we all followed somebody around and had essentially uh, vocational training from a, a mentor who yelled at us. And, and that was the same with me. I finally didn't open my mouth till I run four successful campaigns. They are like uh, the ones, you know, I had ones work for me. They want to be a vice president in six months at the firm. So part of me despairs at that because it's not what I'm comfortable with. But on the other hand, they're pretty ruthless in processing information fast. And they're suspicious of everything. They're so postmodern that way that I think that's a good caution to have. So I'm kind of optimistic about them, even though we're going through a bad period now. And hopefully they're learning the lesson that we can have failure in politics and the way to fix it is to enter politics. You can't afford not to. And that's what we're trying to do at USC at the Center for the Political Future. You know, we're not a think tank. We don't try to solve anything. We're working on the incentives to get people involved, help them get a career in it, and try to understand incentives for more civil fighting. We're for fighting, but, you know, we're for a bell, a winner, a loser, and a rematch the next day under rules. Well, on that cautiously optimistic note, and with a plug for our crosstown rival, um, I want to thank you. <laughs> Mike Murphy, for joining us on Then and Now. It's been a really illuminating time with you. Thanks so much. I totally dug it. Thank you. If people want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Murphy Mike and check out the podcast. We got to have you on to give the uh, the kind of high-level intellectual view because we have all these political hacks. And believe Anytime. me, nobody's IQ goes up. Anytime. And thank you to our listeners out there. Let us know your thoughts on this or other episodes of Then and Now by emailing us at luskincenter at history.ucla.edu. That's L-U-S-K-I-N, center at history.ucla.edu. And special thanks, as always, to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. Until next time, wishing you a pleasant and safe day. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>